Hello and welcome to Shank Talks Bonhoeffer, a podcast all about the life, times, and work of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the World War II era Lutheran pastor, moral philosopher, and Nazi resistor who would ultimately give his life for his convictions when he was summarily executed at the Flossenburg concentration camp by orders from the highest echelon of the Nazi party, and that after a multi-year and heroic struggle to preserve the moral and spiritual integrity of the church and its witness in Germany, he and his fellows would largely lose that war but would win many battles, including preserving a small remnant of the church against the uh, moral corruption, uh, the spiritual compromise, and the politicization of the church in Germany. And they did that in a number of ways, and of course that put him at great risk. He was jailed, uh, he became part of a conspiracy, to bring down the Hitler government and would ultimately be executed for that uh, at age 39 in April of 1945. But, of course, uh, there was a very large and complicated context to all of Bonhoeffer's work, and that was, of course, the Nazi regime and its most grotesque Uh, expression of its utter, uh, utter and complete uh, moral turpitude, and that was the mechanized mass murder of millions of innocent people in what is commonly referred to now as the Holocaust. And there's a very interesting conference held every year in the United States examining this context of the Holocaust from that period, and that is a backdrop to the Bonhoeffer drama that just can't ever be ignored or uh, underrated. It was a huge part of the context. In fact, you could argue that it was the thing that pulled Bonhoeffer across the line on the conspiracy to assassinate Hitler, uh, again, because of the enormous amount of human suffering and death that was occurring. And uh, that factors in. Uh, We don't have time to explore it here. We will in a future podcast. But in any case, the Holocaust is terribly important all of its own. But when you attach it to the story of Bonhoeffer and his fellows in Germany, uh, it gives their struggle Uh, more meaning. And that's why I attended the recent 49th Annual Scholars Conference on the Holocaust and the Churches held at the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies at the University of Texas at Dallas. That was March 2nd through 4th of 2019. And while there, I had an opportunity to talk to some of the experts on this question of the Holocaust in general, but also specifically of the churches and their role, uh, both in ameliorating some of the suffering uh, that was occurring during the Holocaust and, sadly, 
also their complicity with it. So this is a very big subject matter. And I was able to sit down with four such experts. And I want to share those conversations with you. So opening the conference uh, was Dr. Nils Romer, who is director of the Ackerman Center at the University of Texas at Dallas, and the Stan and Barbara Rabin Professor of Holocaust Studies there. Uh, and uh, Dr. Romer was very interesting for a number of reasons. Of course, he's a scholar's scholar. Uh, he's the one who essentially convened this gathering. And he's a native German. So there's a very personal connection uh, with this. It's not all academic, so to speak, uh, for Dr. Romer. So I think, you know, hearing it in that way, and I and uh, I think I make reference to it during our conversation, but in any case, I'll let you eavesdrop on my conversation with Dr. Nils Romer, director of the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies at the University of Texas at Dallas. Here's Dr. Romer and me. Talking with Dr. Niels Romer, and I will mention again uh, that you are professor of Holocaust Studies and director of the Ackerman Center, which I want to talk mostly about. But first, I always mention an author's book first. And I noticed uh, this interesting title, German City, Jewish Memory. Would you tell us about the book? This is a book that I completed a couple of years ago. It's a book about a small community, but a community in, Germ in Germany which happens to be one of the oldest ones. Worms. Worms, after all. It's the cradle of German Jewry in many ways. And so the idea of that book was really to think about this place as a space of memory and how it evolved over the course of a thousand years. So the book really commences in the Middle Ages and takes on as the first kind of uh, large historical event, the Crusades of 1096 and the destruction of the community and how in the aftermath of that destruction, the community rebuilt its, itself, but also commemorated 1096 as a historical event. And so it's a study of history and memory, but the title is also very much um, kind of alluding to this idea that in many ways, whatever we think of Jewish or Jewish memories are very much also intertwined with what German memories are. And that is very clearly the case in a small regional town like Worms, that it becomes really hard to separate these two out at a particular point. And in particular also, that is the case in the post-war period where the last chapter is the synagogue of Worms I, I, took, I took interest in, in celebrates the in the 1930s its 900th anniversary. So in lots of ways, it gives Worms and German Jewry one more time the opportunity to look back and to kind of commemorate these hundreds and hundreds of years of an ongoing presence of Jews on German uh, in German cities. But at the same time, the synagogue shortly thereafter and Kristallnacht falls also victim um, to destruction and vandalism, and is then subsequently almost raised to the ground. I see. After the war, it gets rebuilt in a city at that point without a community. So it becomes then more of a memorial than a synagogue, even though it is temporarily 
um, used by um, the Jewish community of Mainz. But therefore it is then both German memory and Jewish memory that are intertwining again in different ways. So this is a theme that I've been tracking throughout that book of this kind of interrelatedness of what Jewish and what German memory is in a local context, but in relationship to a community that is tiny as far as the numbers are concerned, but symbolically immensely significant for Jews around the world. Well, if you're curious at all about uh, the way Germans deal with memory and and uh, Jews with memories of Germany, which is very personal for me because my family came from Germany before the war mm -hmm. to this country, and there was a lot of reminiscence about life in Germany and, and very pleasant memories, good memories. Mm -hmm. So the complexities of remembering, uh, this is worthy of investigation. So I commend the book. I hope you'll get a hold of it. I noticed you can get it on Amazon. And when you buy it at smile.amazon.com, you also benefit the work of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, Institute. So please do buy it through smile.amazon.com. And let's talk about memory because uh, this is actually uh, our conversation will play uh, during Holocaust Remembrance. Mm -hmm. uh, and what, you're the director of the Ackerman Center here at University of Texas, Dallas. Let's talk a little bit about the Ackerman Center just for a minute or two uh, and its role uh, in remembering uh, and then the importance of remembering the Holocaust. Why? Why should we? That's a couple of bigger questions all woven into one. So let me start with a smaller one, the Ackerman Center. Um, the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies um, is, is about seven or eight years old now in, in terms of an established center with a name. But the Holocaust Studies program is over 30 years old. At this point, we have a designated center. We have three full professors. We have a lecturer. We will hire a fourth full, um, professor. Um, we will add on to the already existing um, courses. So it's a fairly robust program. Alongside with it, we are now the home to the annual Scholars Conference on the Holocaust and the Churches. We have annual lectures. We have libraries. We have scholarships. We have fellowships. And so we have, you know, essentially what an academic center does. One of the things um, that is really remarkable about the center is that it is now situated in, a, in an immensely uh, new type of university. The university will next year celebrate its 50th anniversary and uh, we are going to celebrate next year the 50th anniversary of the annual Scholars Conference. So we are almost neck to neck. But mm -hmm. in many ways the university really has fundamentally changed over the last 10 years. It has almost doubled in size um, at a time when most other universities have immensely struggled. Now are we talking about the campus here, or the camp, we're talking the about campus, the overall no, no, just university? The, 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 the campus here, here in Dallas. Here in Dallas. Um, that's when you look out, which you know, you and I can do this right now. Yes. Most of the buildings surrounding us are five to ten years old. You, you can tell that. I mean, you and, feel you're in a very new institution. But along institution. with that, and that's you know what gets me to the issue of memory, came not just growth, but also a tremendously new diversity. We have students from 105 different countries here on Bravo. campus. On any given day, um, 
Maybe not when it's quite as cold as today. If you walk around here... It's colder it, here in the south than it was in the north when I left. On any other day, you might feel for a moment when you close your eyes that you're at Fort Worth International Airport because you have all these various languages. Which means, thinking now about Holocaust and Holocaust studies in such tremendously diverse campus is really like a new environment for us to consider. When I teach classes on the Holocaust, I have students from Asia, from India, from the Middle East, from Latin America in my classes. Certainly can't make uh, the kinds of assumptions about those students that you may have made just 10, 15 years ago Very in different. another setting. I mean, you'll, you probably will have noticed by my absent Texan accent that I'm originally <laughs> from Germany. When I grew up in Germany, the Holocaust mattered in a particular way. It was very much about a particular idea of German responsibility, which is still really important, but it is one of the many ways in which we make the Holocaust relevant. Making it relevant and important for us today in this diverse environment is an altogether different task. So the best way for me to illustrate this is you asked me about the upcoming Holocaust Remembrance Day. And so one thing that we always feel very strongly is Teaching the Holocaust is not just simply lecturing, but it's, it's kind of orchestrating engagement. Mm. And that is particularly important for us on Holocaust Remembrance Day. And so one of the things that I instituted uh, several years ago when we, when I, after I had become the director of the center is that prior to the um, Yom HaShoah, we host a number of translation workshops at the center. And we just randomly invite anyone on campus, faculty, staff, student, does not matter, to come to our center and to participate in the attempt to translate one poem into as many languages as we can. Oh. And so we have then a Russian team, we have a Chinese team, we have an Arabic team, the whole center is filled, and we start this out by a small lecture about that particular poem, and then the various groups translate that poem. And on Holocaust Remembrance Day, we cite for hours um, Holocaust poems, but in various languages. Mm, mm. And that, to me, has always been something where... These are poems written contemporaneously with the Holocaust, or, or afterwards, or any I mean, time. we started out with one of the most famous ones by Paul Salan, um, that we translated, and then we subsequently added on different ones. I see. But for me, it became a way to kind of, so to speak, transfer the Holocaust from one language into others and also to make the respective students speakers in their own native languages. And I think that also in lots of ways um, authenticates the, the idea that today on a, on a campus as diverse as ours, there are multiple vantage points, multiple mm. entry mm. points to the study of the Holocaust. I have a uh, good number of Middle Eastern students um, who are now very intrigued, for example, to study what you could call the marginal histories of the Holocaust, the North African victims uh, from ah. Libya, uh, from Morocco, um, but also from Turkey, um, but also from Lebanon and the likes, who for different reasons were also caught up to it. Now, this would have not some, been something that would have been and central to me growing up in Germany and thinking about the Holocaust, but these are also really important entry points. I have a good many students who are from Latin America. They are writing now PhDs about Holocaust survivors mm. in Brazil. Mm. Um, they're writing about racism and anti-Semitism in Mexico. So and these what are, a wonderful way to culturally contextualize 
the Holocaust simply by putting it in one's own language. That's the, the simple idea. And I think it does actually quite a bit of empowering also these different access points and of indicating that there's not any longer one particular one. It's not any longer just my particular mm. German you know, entry into it, nor is it our founding director, Zhuzhana Ashwat, is a Holocaust survivor from uh, Budapest. She obviously has a, a very different story um, and a different entry point to this. We teach, you know, in, in, a, in a common way, um, probably like you would learn about the Holocaust at many other North Af American <laughs> universities. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I think it is vital for us to understand that the, that the way in which students come to the table, so to speak, have varied now, multiplied, and to acknowledge that. And so the Holocaust Remembrance Day is one way in which we are doing it. Another, which is equally important and says something about the Ackerman Center, is that we are situated not in a history department, but we are situated in the School of the Arts and Humanities. Oh. So in particular on Holocaust Remembrance Day, we juxtapose the recitations of poems in many languages with also art performances. Because I'm, by training, I'm historian. I will tell you how much it is important to engage the history of the Holocaust in a scholarly manner. But I recognize mm -hmm. that arts, performances, literature, imagination, creativity are other ways in which we make that past again relevant and important to us. And so in many ways, therefore, our study program that is you know, attached to the Ackerman Center is very multidisciplinary. It's about art, it's about philosophy, it's about literature, it's about theology, it's um, about all these different ways also, as far as the disciplines are concerned, to engage the past. Well, very Bonhoeffrian way of looking at things because, of course, uh, he, he had enormous appreciation for the arts as well. And speaking of Bonhoeffer, and that's what we do in this podcast, we talk Bonhoeffer. And when you talk Bonhoeffer, you have to talk a personal story. And so much of what we know of him is his own personal experience. What about your own? Why did you take on the Ackerman Center? What personally drew you to this post? Well, I mean, I gave away that I'm from Germany, so um, you have that We would already. have guessed. Uh, you would have just about made that out, uh, which, you know, and then if you put now years into this conversation, um, I would have been roughly in my 20s during the 1980s, time when Germany virtually experienced the anniversaries of all of the bigger turning points, 1933, 1935, Indeed. 1938. Uh, this was also still in the throes of the kind of tail end of the Cold War. So coming, you know, becoming politically aware in this environment would have made you keenly aware of the Holocaust and its various legacies. Um, at that point, I think I was just like many other Germans, engaging the past, thinking about what that means for oneself, because at this point, you're a youngster, you're traveling, you're in France, you're in, in England, and you notice that people are turning their heads sometimes when you speak loudly with your friends mm -hmm. in German. There are different mm -hmm. reactions, and so it becomes a process where you have to you got to think about what does it mean to be German and what does it mean to you. But at that point, it was, you know, kind of the normal personal quest of sorts. Yes. I had started um, studying history and for various reasons, um, I had decided not to um, do the compulsory military service, but rather to opt for alternative services. I, see. I ended up going um, out with a small organization 
Action Reconciliation and Service for Peace that mm. came out of the aftermath of the what we call the Confessing Church. Yes. The, the you know, immediate 1950s and the realization that the churches had in many ways failed um, to do what they would have been required to do in the times of, of, of the Holocaust. And I ended up going with them to Israel. I see. And I spent about two years there. Um, what years are we talking about? Um, this is the from 86, 87 to 89. I see. And um, which wasn't quite my plan, but it turned out that way when I when I was allocated that one of the positions that was available was at the Leo Beck Institute in Jerusalem, which is an I'm institute with it. founded by German Jewish survivors. And they, so to speak, took me under their wings mm. and uh, welcomed me and, and in lots of ways educated me about all kinds of things, Judaism, German Jewish history, um, German history, German literature, um, and, you know, the part of my work, you know, the very first thing that the director back then told me is you work a certain amount of hours here every week, but five hours every week we want you to spend in the library. And just this is going to count as your work time, but ah. we want you just to read. And in many ways, I came back quite changed after two years. I diverted my studies more toward German Jewish history. I ended up writing my master thesis on German Jewish history, but then, like many other youngsters, felt there was something missing. Mm. I had grown up in Hamburg. I'd been educated in Hamburg, and so I ended up um, studying at Columbia University Jewish history. And that became another transformation of sorts. Mm. I then taught for six years um, Jewish history in, um, in England, I see. And then came to D Dallas. Um, and did this post find you, or did you this find post this position? Found me a little bit, and what I was taken by was when I interviewed here. Uh, was there was a great, you know, this was before the big growth of this university. But everyone talked already about how everything was going to change, and there was just a lot of of energy and excitement, and everyone felt that what they were doing was critical and was going to make a difference here on campus. And I was just very taken by that atmosphere. Mm. But initially I was brought in to teach Jewish history, to I help see. and to add to the teaching portfolio of Professor Ashwat, who had taught Holocaust classes. Uh, but then over time, and you know, that already was part of my book about Worms, I kind of veered out of the Jewish history also back into the Holocaust studies. Uh, more and more, because to me it always seemed that it would be silly to or foolish to think about, in particular, the German-Jewish past without considering also how it ended. And the fields in lots of ways had separated ways. There were people who were dedicated scholars of German-Jewish history, and they tended to end in 33, and then the Holocaust studies took over. And so I started merging these fields. Uh -huh. And then a couple of years ago, I became the director of the center. And in lots of ways, this um, for me, it was a wonderful opportunity because it kind of returned me to why I entered this field in the first place. I, I entered all of this because I grew up in Germany and because I was thinking about myself, about what it means to be German, about European culture, about Jewish tradition. And over the years, I had become more occupied with Jewish history and thought and philosophy, which greatly interested me. 
but my current position has allowed me kind of to return to, to hmm. what the initial mattering map is. And now I think more than ever, the history of the Holocaust, of violence, of, of atrocities matter a great deal to us. And I think we still, we, we have to, a job to do as scholars in the humanities, and that is we have to um, bring students into engaging with big questions for which there are no ready-made answers. Mm. And you heard me um, on the opening night on um, Saturday for the annual Scholars Conference to address um, the, the guests. And one of the things that matters to me a great deal now is to kind of return actually to what I was trying to advance in that evening, and that is the idea that we have to recognize the, and understand the Holocaust not just as a gigantic event with six million dead and with a horrific regime, but we kind of have to return into the minutiae of individuals and the immediate time context if we want to recover the, the big questions of the why. Mm. Because, you know, a lot of scholarship coming out of the 70s and 80s was going into the big structures of the totalitarian state, the bureaucracy. Indeed. And, and it kind of clouded or, you know, obscured a little bit the, the individual choices, the agencies, mm. the responsibilities. And I think now more than ever, those are the questions that interest us and those are the questions that interest our students why respectively individuals perpetrators did what they did but also what and bystanders who did nothing but also respectively what did victims do and how did they make sense of what was happening mm. to them i mean for many of them at least as far as the early parts are concerned they are kind of most often looking only at the smallest of elements of a gigantic elephant that they can barely measure mm. out and they don't quite yet know what happens to them. So many German Jews early on in the 30s, um, in, when the Nuremberg laws are, are legislated, compared to a return to the Middle Ages, which is both very perceptive in terms mm. of understanding the fundamental radicalism of the Third Reich and how it would depend their rights and, and, and the status, but in many ways also utterly wrong because what is going to happen would be so much more horrific and so much more radical than anything that had ever happened. And so I so understand how individuals make sense of what is available to them in terms of existing models and how they comprehend the events in front of them on a mm. daily basis and how based on their interpretation they make choices going into exile, not going into exile, or later going into hiding, not going into hiding. Um, those are all, I think, important moments that if we recover them, we return actually more the, what I call the individual lives, the experiences, their choices, and their respective views of what happened to them, which I think is a vital component um, in, in terms of how we make sense out of the past today. And what a wonderful way to make it relevant in the present. Exactly. Uh, That's because it. each of us face these questions. Each of us uh, faces In small that. ways, and in large ways, we hope never in the uh, gargantuan way that it was, although we can't rule out genocide is being perpetrated in our present moment, will continue to be, sadly, in the world. So uh, let, me, uh, let me ask you uh, just a practical question. Can our listeners access uh, the Ackerman Center 
uh, and benefit from it? Uh, are there lectures online, ways that they can interact with you here at the center? Oh, there are many ways in which they can interact with us. We have a mailing list, obviously, through mm -hmm. which we advertise events, but we also write uh, weekly or bi-weekly newsletters about what we do and send them out. We have a Facebook page. We have uh, other social media. We have a YouTube channel where we upload our annual Einspruch lectures. Those are kind of our, you know, high-level lectures where yeah. we bring in some of the you know best and and uh, most important scholarly voices. Uh, usually, individuals who had just published a book last year. Peter Hayes was here. He had just published the book Why the Holocaust. Um, and so, you know, those are freely available. So where do you start? What's the portal? I should have done my well, the homework easy way here. Is, is to find us um, simply by typing in in the Google Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies. A-C-K-E-R-M-A-N. Exactly. That's an easy way to find us. Good. And then you can... Uh, well, we'll have links, come to think of it. I always forget all of our folks who make sure that the links are on the page here with the podcast, so you'll see that there. And this is an excellent resource. Maybe I'll conclude, and I know your time is limited. You're running a conference right yeah, now. And, yeah. uh, and, and I have to go back in the kitchen. Exquisitely so. You know? Yes, <laughs> you do. Uh, at least into one of the conference rooms, I'm sure. And maybe just a final word. As a German, someone for whom this is not theory, this is part of your history in a sense, how does it feel for you personally to experience this over and over and over again as the stories are told, as the examinations are made, as new perspectives are brought out. Is that a difficult thing for you personally? Uh, I mean, you handle it exquisitely. You bring a perspective, I'm sure. Uh, it's a benefit to be German in this position, and yet it's also a personal matter for you, what is it like for you? You know, it's an interesting question. I am also a father of, of quite a few kids. And so my youngest one asked me like about a year and a half ago, he's interested in history and comes to events. He says, how do you actually do this every day? Hmm. Um, this is really like, you know, he's 13 at this point. So this is a big issue. How do you deal with this every day? Is it not immensely sad? Is it not? Uh, something that, that, you know, really hard to, to, to con kind of confront every day. Um, you know, I think most or almost every Holocaust scholar that I know, everyone who teaches in the Holocaust, you know, in a way has to confront this. But I think it's equally true that in strange ways, everyone that I know um, is, is on the one side thinking about, you know, the, the darkness that, that comes with this, but they do it all for the purpose of the today and the tomorrow. Mm. And so there's really something inspiring and beautiful about that. You just heard a wonderful lecture just a couple of minutes ago here about a Holocaust museum in Mexico. I and did, nothing indeed. could be more inspiring and passionate than the work that they do. I felt very hopeful. So you end up, you know, curiously enough, despite the, you know, the subject matter, I think there's a great hopefulness and a great urgency also that, that people feel in, in the pursuit of that. So th and that, I think, makes it far easier. And I always say that the, you know, the engagement with the past can be a very lively and a stimulating and a creative uh, process, which also in many ways 
that makes people realize because the Holocaust is a watershed in, in, in the history of humanity, people from all kinds of walks of likes come to it. Mm. And I find that always the most reassuring one. If I look into our audience and see people from across the generations from different communities all converging in a conversation um, together. And I think that's probably more than anything that we need these days. And I think there, again, we have also a big role to fulfill as a public university. We can be that place that brings people together into one room that otherwise probably would never be in proximity to each other because in many ways they feel that there are many things that separate them. But you asked me what it means for me in particular uh, as far as me being German and engaging in this. I think, you know, it's something that, you know, evolves with you and changes. I think, um, in my mind at least, and in the ways in which students respond to it, I think they understand that there's not just simply an academic side to me, but that there's a personal side to it. And I think in many ways they, and it's very obvious, it's not particularly hidden. And I yes. think they take it also as something that um, authorizes them to also have a personal engagement mm. with that question, mm. whichever one that is. And Indeed. so therefore, strangely enough, these days, I find it often as something that actually helps me in my work rather than as something that stands in my way. Well, I think you should feel very good about the redemptive side of what you do here at the Ackerman Center, to take something that, as you say, is uh, often so dark in the first encounter, and yet uh, there's a lot of life and hope and help that comes out of the examination of this for each of us personally, as well as uh, professionally, academically, intellectually, historically, all the rest of it. But it's a redemptive act, and I that's a wonderful thank you for so. taking it on. Uh, Dr. Nils, uh, do you pronounce it Niels? Well, you know, I've, here it's it, it is Niels, and then of you course. know. But I'm I'm I like I'm, to be I'm used precise. to this Niels and you know all yes. kinds of versions. But if you want to put it right, then it would be Niels. Niels, of course. Thank you very uh, much. Thank you that. for spending the time with us. And again, I commend to you German city, uh, Jewish memory, and I'll be reading it. Uh, and uh, the story of worms. Thank you very worms, much. Worms, if worms. you insist on anglicizing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you.